You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Um, pretty excited to share uh, a few things with you today. Obviously, the uh, story of the resurrection is important, but uh, Doug mentioned that song, Because He Lives, um, and it's been kind of ringing in my head this week. Uh, he told you the story behind the song, Because He Lives, and not connected to that, uh, has nothing to do with why we picked it for our church service theme, but uh, behind that uh, story is this idea that they were expecting their third child. Um, what Doug didn't sing is there's one chorus in there uh, where it says, how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days because he lives. And for me and uh, Sheila, it's been pretty special for us this year uh, because yesterday our first grandbaby was born. And so that was pretty exciting. And it really does give kind of this new meaning to thinking about the resurrection and uh, thinking about how we do have this kind of crazy world that we're bringing children into on purpose, right? We, like, we know what the world's like, but we keep bringing kids into this world. Uh, not because this world is the reward. We're bringing kids into this world because of the gift that God gives us of eternal life. It's the world after that that we so look forward to, that we're so hopeful for. And because we know what comes in the future, we can have this kind of hope in the things that go on tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. But uh, Now, uh, most of you know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke for the last uh, 17 weeks. Uh, we have a handful of weeks left, uh, so we're actually just going to continue that study, but we're not going to take the whole chapter tonight, although it's an amazing chapter. It was ministering to me greatly this week. Uh, we're going to take one section of it to kind of get us focused on the theme of the resurrection, but if you get a chance to read chapter 18, please do. Uh, you have at the beginning the par parable of the, the widow and the judge, uh, just encouraging us to continue in prayer. Uh, then you have the parable of the Pharisee uh, and the uh, sinner who goes uh, to, to pray before God, and we learn that the one who uh, is humbling themselves is the one who's justified. Uh, then we have Jesus calling the little children to himself, and he blesses them as well. Uh, we have the rich young ruler in this chapter. The rich young ruler is going to ask the question, you know, what do I need to do in order to be saved? So that's the question that's being asked, and Jesus essentially tells him, sell everything you have and just follow me. And Jesus just wants people to, to follow after him. Uh, then at the end of this, we have a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus who's going to receive sight. And what is he going to do? He's going to, now that Jesus gave him the ability to see, he's going to leave everything and follow Jesus. We're actually going to see somebody do that. But in between those things, in verses 31 through 34, uh, we have the little section of scripture that'll be our uh, kind of our focus passage to get us going into the resurrection today. In verse 31 of chapter 18 in the Gospel of Luke, it says this, Then he, that's Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. After, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things 
which were said. Well, this is something that Jesus has said multiple times in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We'll see this promise made in Luke chapter 9. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise from the dead. We see it again in Luke chapter 13. I want my disciples to know we're on our way to Jerusalem. When we get there, they're going to beat me, and then I'm going to suffer, and then I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And then he's going to say it, of course, here in chapter 18. Uh, But what ultimately is interesting to me is although Jesus has said this many times to his disciples, they didn't understand it. I mean, they understood the individual words, but what Luke is recording for us as he has spoken to these various disciples that were with Jesus during this time, he's recording this idea, this understanding that they just didn't get it. Again, they heard the words, those words don't make sense. You see, their view of the Messiah was a little bit different. Their view of the Messiah was that this conquering king was going to come and throw off all the oppressors, in their case, the Roman Empire. So they're imagining Jesus as this political or military leader who's going to come in and be their Messiah. But when he shows up, he's a carpenter and a rabbi. He's more of a teacher than he is a soldier. And so as he's kind of ministering to the people in these things and he's trying to explain it to them, it really is, it's kind of like a complete 180 on what they expected. And it's even more confusing if he's supposed to be their king, say, what now, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to die? That kind of ends the kingdom prematurely. We were to understand that the Messiah was going to bring in an eternal kingdom and you're telling us that you're going to die And then there's this thing about you raising from the dead again. I mean, it's all very confusing. It really is. It's a little bit confusing. And I can't even imagine from their perspective not having the ability to look back through the cross to see what we have seen, to see what we know, to try to comprehend these things. And so we have this here. They they didn't understand any of these things. They couldn't comprehend these things. I do think interesting in the middle of that, though, was that this statement was hidden from them. I think to a certain extent... God didn't want them to have the full picture yet. He was was giving them these things in advance so that when he raised from the dead, they would get it. That to me, though, is going to be kind of the idea that I want to go with today. My question today is, do we understand the value of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do we as disciples of Jesus get this? I think most of us comprehend the idea that Jesus raised from the dead. And I think some of us could even go through some of the apologetics of that. We could have that discussion. We could say, look, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. It's pretty obvious, right? Because of all the eyewitnesses' accounts. That's how we know he rose from the dead. Because there were hundreds of people calling themselves Messiah at that time. We don't know any of their names. We know this guy's name. We know that those eyewitnesses were so assured of his resurrection that they were willing to die for that truth. We know that you could have gone to the tomb at any time in history and pointed out he didn't raise, look, here's his body. But they couldn't because the tomb was empty. So all the evidence says he raised from the dead, and we would agree with that. But the real question is, what difference does it make? See, our understanding of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross paying the price for our sins. So why did he have to raise again? We even understand now that he's ascended, he's in heaven, and he's there as this one mediator between God and man. He's there speaking with his Father on our behalf, those of us who believe. 
He could have done all of that without raising from the dead, right? So what is the point, the purpose, or the value of the resurrection to us as individual believers? That's what we want to look at. And so we're going to look at five different statements that kind of tell us why it's important that Jesus is still a living Savior. Uh, The first one is this, because I know he keeps his promises. The second will be because he lives, I know that prophecy is fulfilled. The third, because he lives, I know he's the Son of God. Because he lives, I know my sin is forgiven. And then lastly, because he lives, I know I will live eternally with him. Those are the five things we're going to look at tonight. So keeping it here in chapter 18, that first one, because he lives, I know he keeps his promises. I want you to see the importance of that. If Jesus said, I'm going to die, and he repeated it often throughout his ministry, often enough that those who were with him reported it to Luke, if he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again, and he doesn't raise again, that makes him a liar. And if he's a liar, then none of his promises mean anything. Nothing he said to his disciples have any meaning at all. It's completely purposeless what we believe because he can't be trusted. But because he rose from the dead, we know that we can trust his promises because he who said that he would raise from the dead actually did it. And that's no small feat, by the way. That's not something that just anybody could do, right? Like, I can't make that promise on anybody else's behalf. I don't know anybody else that could just say, look, this is the deal. Kill me if you want. I'll see you in three days. Give it your best shot. Nobody else could do that. Now, the power of this statement shows that he has the power to keep all of his promises. Even the ones we haven't seen kept yet are promises to be kept. There's value in knowing that Our Savior is a promise keeper. And so each of those times, look at this in Luke chapter 24. We just read through it. I'm going to read through it again. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And this is the important part in verse 6. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and reported all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was important that Jesus made that connection for them. He wanted them to remember that he said these things. Because that for them is going to give them this assurance going forward that they can trust in God. 
For me personally as a believer, I don't fully understand everything that God is going to do or how it's all going to work out. And I understand that I don't even get to see it all. That's the crazy thing. I don't get to see all the stuff that Jesus said was going to happen. There's been things I've missed in history. There'll be things I'll miss after I'm long gone. I don't get to see it all. But because he showed his power in the resurrection, I can trust him in those things. And so every time I read a promise in scripture, I receive it as truth. Because I don't know anybody else that could show himself so powerful as that. We We worship a savior who keeps his promises to us in his time and in his way. And I want us to always remember that. Because he lives, I know he keeps his promises. It's the evidence he keeps his promises. Well, back in chapter 18 again, Jesus was telling these things to his 12 apostles, verse 31. It says, he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. The second part of that is similar in nature. It's not just that he keeps his promises, but that his promises were prophecy. And they were connected to Old Testament prophecies designed so that when he fulfilled them, people would know that he was the Messiah, the one that they were all waiting for. You see, Jesus' resurrection is a fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecies. Paul's going to say something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. He's going to say, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and appeared to Cephas, the twelve, then to many, to James, the apostles, and then one born out of time, Paul says, even to me. Now, when we read that, we think Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. We think about the Scriptures like the New Testament stories. Like, no, they didn't have that written down at that point. When it says that he raised, again, according to the Scriptures, and when Jesus says here, all things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man have to come true, they have to be accomplished, it's pointing to Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Jesus will address that, by the way, in Luke chapter 24. Uh, He's going to meet these guys on the way to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, the whole section there, verse 44 on down, uh, he's going to talk about this. But uh, uh, in verse 46, he'll say it like this. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Even Jesus understood and made clear to his disciples that he was going to resurrect on the third day because that's what the prophecies required of him. God set all of this stuff down on paper in the past so that when it happened, we would know. And it's some pretty specific stuff. It's not like Nostradamus type stuff. Where it's like pretty impressive, but you kind of could have just said those things. And if you wait long enough, something like that will happen. This is different. (laughs) This is different. No, no, I need you to understand. When I say he's going to die and raise again, it literally means he's going to die and raise again. So important to the early church was uh, his resurrection as a fulfillment of prophecy. When Peter preaches his first sermon in in the book of Acts, 
the sermon that gets it all started with the church in Jerusalem, he uses this idea of prophecy in order to preach this comment or this idea to the people. Uh, he lets them know in Acts chapter 2, verse 24 through 28. I'll just read a section of it to you. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. But in Acts chapter 2, uh, it says this. Uh, I'll start in verse 24. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and then he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my son, to, my soul to Hades, nor allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Uh, the, the prophecy there in Psalm 16 was this, that God's Holy One would not undergo decay. He's going to die, but he's not going to decompose like everybody else. That's what the psalmist was saying. Now, some people will argue, well, that's talking about David. David decomposed. <laughs> he's gone. Now, this was talking through David's seed, the promised Messiah that was to come from the lineage of David, to be the king on the throne of David eternally, speaking of Jesus the Christ, the Holy One would not undergo decay. That's the, the promise here in Scripture. Now we have a Savior in Jesus who fulfills prophecy. Uh, beyond that, uh, some that maybe we don't always think about in Job chapter 19, Job has this understanding that goes well beyond the theology of the day. Job says this, I know my Redeemer lives, and I shall see God. He knew it. He knew that his Redeemer was going to live. He knew that his Redeemer was a living Redeemer. Now we see it in Isaiah 53. Although it says he's going to render himself a guilt offering, immediately after that in Isaiah 53 it says, but he will prolong his days. Well, a guilt offering is an offering that is put to death. So he's going to offer himself as a guilt offering and then prolong his days? Yes, he's going to be sacrificed, but then he's going to raise again. The Old Testament prophecies continue to point that way. This, by the way, this Isaiah 53 has always been a perplexing one for the Jews who haven't received Jesus because they see in there this picture of the suffering servant which is who Jesus came as first, and they see it as somebody different or in contrast to the conquering king. The problem is they just have the order a little bit mixed up. First, he comes as the suffering servant. He will be sacrificed. But then he'll come as the conquering king. His days will be prolonged. The resurrection was all throughout the Old Testament. It's also in the imagery, by the way. I think sometimes we miss the power of imagery in the Old Testament. Uh, but think of this picture. Uh, Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? Well, there's a problem there. God promised that through Isaac, the Messiah would come. And so, of course, you follow the genealogy of Jesus back. It does. It goes all the way through Isaac to Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam. But Jesus is in that genealogy. It was supposed to be from Isaac, but here's the cool thing. Abraham, in faith to God, somehow knowing that God had a plan, in faith to God, lifts the knife to sacrifice his own son. And then as a beautiful image, 
God gives a different sacrifice, a ram, to be sacrificed so that the son could continue to live. The sacrificed son continued to live. It's the same imagery all throughout the Old Testament. There's a, on the Day of Atonement, they have the, the, the sacrifice of the scapegoat. So they could show this picture of resurrection. They bring two goats for sacrifice instead of one. One is sacrificed, the other is set free, continues to live. It's the same picture. Yes, there's a sacrifice for your sins, but the one to be sacrificed will continue on and live. There's even one with doves, these, these birds that they would sacrifice. They would tie wood to their back. One would be sacrificed and the other would fly off. This picture all throughout the Old Testament that the Savior would be sacrificed, yes, but he would live. Now, we can trust in our Savior because he's a fulfilled prophecy. Because he lives, I know that God's prophecy is fulfilled, which again becomes important because he's prophesied about his second coming that we wait for. All of that that's prophesied forward, those things will happen. We know because he's kept his promises in the past and because he fulfilled the prophecies of the past. And so now we're just waiting and watching as prophecies continue to fall, as the things of God continue to happen. Uh, the next one might seem a little bit odd to you, but uh, because he lives, I know he's the Son of God. Now, that might seem unimportant to you, but I want you to understand it this way. He claimed to be the Son of God. Well, how do you know that's true? Anybody could claim to be the Son of God, right? Like any of us could. Any one of us could just walk around and say, I'm the Son of God. How do you prove that you're the Son of God? And this was a real issue, by the way. As Jesus was proclaiming to be the Son of God or the Son of David, man, the religious leaders would get all bent out of shape because they understood if you're the Son of God, that makes you by very nature God. Just like if a human has a child, that child will be human every single time. If a dog has a child, that dog will be a dog every single time. And if God has a child, that child will be God. It's a claim to divinity. And the Pharisees wanted to kill him for it on a couple of different occasions. It's interesting, this claim of him being the Son of God is all throughout Scripture. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul explains to us what it means. You see, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, that was the evidence he was the Son of God. Uh, let me just break that evidence down for you pretty simply. If he was claiming to be the Son of God and wasn't the Son of God, do you think Jesus would resurrect him? Uh, Jesus would resurrect God would resurrect him. God would say, that's not my kid. That's what he would have done. He claimed to be the Son of God, and then God raised him from the dead. That's powerful. Because he lives, I know he's the Son of God. And these claims, again, they're all throughout it. In Luke chapter 1, the angel says to, to Mary, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. In Luke chapter 3, in his genealogy, it goes through all these people and that it ends with 
the Son of God. At his baptism, remember Jesus' baptism, God himself declares, Behold, my son, listen to him. We have even Satan challenging this. At the temptation in Luke chapter 4, Satan on two different occasions as he's tempting Jesus, he'll say, if you are the son of God, do this. After that in Luke chapter 4, at the end of that chapter, we have demons being cast out by uh, Jesus on this kind of regular basis. And it says in verse 41 of Luke 4, demons also were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God. The demons were declaring he was the son of God. Satan was trying to challenge this. God declared him the Son of God. Mary declared him the Son of God. And then in Luke chapter 22, at Jesus' trial, the religious leaders asked him, the Sanhedrin said, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, Yes, I am. They freaked out. They said, What other evidence do we need? Put him to death. They freaked out because listen to the words. Are you the Son of God? Yes, I am. How did God introduce himself at the burning bush? What should I call you? And he said, I am. Jesus declaring himself there to be the Son of God who is God. It's important as he was resurrected, demonstrated the power of God for his son and made clear that he truly is the son of God. Because he lives, I know he's the son of God. Again, there are, there are false prophets all over the world who will make such claims. But they're powerless prophets. They're powerless messiahs. There's nothing behind them. Well, the fourth one, Important, I think, for us, and I won't spend a ton of time on it, but I think it's important because he lives, I know my sin is forgiven. Paul makes the most amazing apologetic for the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if you're curious why we believe in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 makes the case. It just lays out in detail all the eyewitnesses. And then it starts to talk about how important the resurrection is and what it would mean if the resurrection wasn't real. And he talks about how that relates to our own resurrection. But in there, he says this, this important statement. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. There's actually a connection to the resurrection in the forgiveness of our sins. Which, again, I think we don't necessarily understand that because we see the sacrifice, we saw him die, and we think, well, that was enough. But it wasn't enough. He had to demonstrate that even for those forgiven of sins, that meant there was power over the death to come. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a proclamation to us that we really are forgiven of our sins. Why is that important? Think of it this way. Thousands of people died on a cross. And anybody could have pointed at any of them and said, that one was special. That was the one. But that would have been the end of it. And frankly, it would have meant nothing. And we wouldn't be talking about it 2,000 years later. 
But no, he put an exclamation point on it. When up from the grave he arose, right? With the mighty triumph for his foes. Like that's powerful what he did. He resurrected. He came back to life. And in doing so, he's helping us know that our sins are forgiven. Paul will talk about it as well in Romans chapter 4. It says he was raised because of our justification. That's why he was raised. He's, he's making this clear point that the work of justification uh, to paying the price for our sins, that work of justification that makes us just as if we've not sinned, even though we have, that work of justification wouldn't be actually complete until he resurrected. That in God's plan, that's, that's what he wanted us to see. The last one is this. Because he lives, I know I will live eternally with him. Boy, that's an important one, right? That's the promise of all of this stuff, just so you know. That's the promise that we will be resurrected someday to eternal life. And if I could put it bluntly, if there's no God... Eternal life means nothing, right? You live, you die. And there's nothingness. And many people believe that. But, but I think they have a God problem. They have an eternity problem. In their view, there was nothing that accidentally became something and created this created all of this just accidentally and it'll someday just run out. And that's just the end of it. It just will go away, I imagine. That's the idea of those who see no after this, no eternity. But we don't think nothing bumped into another nothing starting a chain of events that in opposition to all matters of statistics created a planet causing amoeba to walk on land and grow chest hair and develop a, a brain that is so amazing that it can do everything that we see all by chance. The math doesn't even make sense. In fact, they'll tell you the math doesn't make sense. You know how they tell you that? By their newest theory, it's the multiverse. There's actually many universes out there. This just happens to be the one where it worked. And so you can divide the statistical improbability by the number of universes. How many is that? We don't know, but whatever it is, it's enough where you divide it by that number and this makes sense. That's the thought. You see, they have an eternity problem. We believe that God is the only eternal and that God spoke and created, and he's all-powerful. And he created it all to make sense like we see it today. And what we discover in science is really just a discovery of him. And because he has this plan in place, he's told us that we get to live eternally with him. You see, there's, there's value to us having an eternal life. Now, we get to be eternally in the presence of this almighty God who created everything around us. 
all the beauty in nature, the fascinating complexity of it all. 1 Corinthians says this, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are sleeping. The first fruits of those who are sleeping. What it's saying, you know, the first fruits of the season is the first fruits that become fresh and you can pick them. But that's the reminder that there's more fruit to come throughout the growing season. For us as believers, Jesus was the first fruit, the the first one to be resurrected. But his resurrection is to show us that God has the power to resurrect us from the dead. He went first to show us the way. And the implications of that are pretty powerful. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in verses 54 through 55, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In Philippians chapter 3, it says uh, that they transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. What that's telling us is that his resurrected body is the prototype for our resurrected body. God's already showing us what it's going to be like to be in a resurrected body. And you can kind of study some of that out through scripture and get a picture of what our resurrected eternal life is going to look like. That's what he's accomplishing through the resurrection. John chapter 14, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. This is an important passage it's in John 14, where he's telling his disciples, I got to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you, an eternal place for you. And because I continue to live, you will. It's the promise of a God, of a Savior who keeps his promises. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. We look forward to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Through his resurrection, he abolished death and shined the light on immortality. 1 Peter 1.3, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope, a hope of living eternally. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. Romans 6.4, we'll see a picture of that later tonight. Romans 6.4, Paul is discussing baptism. And as he describes baptism, it says, As Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's this picture. In baptism, we take somebody, we bury them in the waters of baptism. We resurrect them to a new life. We're just doing the thing that Jesus did. We're just preaching the gospel with every baptism. We're giving everybody a picture. Jesus died and with him our sin, and he was resurrected. And in the same sense, we die in the waters of baptism and we're resurrected to a newness of life in Jesus Christ. That's all that he was accomplishing for us. So this song that the Gaithers were singing, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow, this is the living hope. This is the overcoming of death. This is the immortality, the eternity that we're waiting for. Because he lives... I know I will live eternally with him. 
His resurrection is valuable, it's important, and it's worthy of spending a a day on, just thinking about it. I'm so thankful you guys are willing to share this time with us, but I want to bring this to mind. We're going to do some more music here in a minute, but I just want to remind you of this. And we often talk about this in the book of Romans chapter 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, means he's the boss. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You have to believe that to be saved. So the question I would ask you guys is, have you believed that? Have you confessed him as Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Can you say with me that the resurrected Jesus Christ is my Lord? This is one of my favorite little phrases that uh, I'm sure I invented it, right? Somebody challenged me one time, "Can, can you get the gospel out in seven words or less? So this is what I came up with. The resurrected Jesus Christ is my Lord. That's the gospel to me. The resurrected Jesus Christ is my Lord. Can you use the word my there? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's power in that. There's comfort in just being reminded of those things. If you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ... I love how it says that in Romans 10, 9. You just have to confess it with your mouth. What do you confess? Jesus is Lord. While you believe, what? God raised him from the dead. And the outcome will be salvation. It means you'll have hope of an eternal life in Jesus Christ. So, I want to end with this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today or you would like to become a believer in Jesus Christ today, I just want you to repeat this with me. I'm fulfilling the requirements of Romans 10, 9, to the encouragement of one another, and maybe to the salvation of some. You don't have to say it if you don't mean it. Please don't, in fact. You just mouth the words, uh, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. <laughs> Man, if you mean it, Say it like you mean it. You guys ready? The resurrected Jesus Christ is my Lord. Think about that. All around you, in Dolby Surround Sound, all of these people who say together, the resurrected Jesus Christ is my Lord. Man, if you can say that today, you can face the future. You you can deal with tomorrow. Because you know all of that's temporary, but ahead of you is an eternity promised to us as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies by the Son of God that your sins are forgiven and you're going to live with Him forever. All of that just because He lives. Let's pray. And by the way, if you're preparing to be baptized, now would be a good time to head back there or else you're going to miss it. (laughs) Uh, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much 
for your son Jesus Christ and all that he's given us through his resurrection. Father, I want to thank you that you are the God who fulfills promises and you've promised us quite a lot. Father, promising us that you'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, promising us that if we confess your son as Lord, believing in your resurrection, that we'll have eternal life. Father, we trust you for those promises. Father, I would ask on behalf of those today who have prayed that and maybe they've prayed it a hundred times in their life and they just mean it. Lord, would they be encouraged of heart today? Would you pick up their spirits? Give them a joy knowing what their future is. Father, if there's anybody that said it for the first time, cemented in their heart. Father, if there's anybody that didn't say it, but man, they just want to now. Let them know they can say it anytime and anywhere. They don't need my help. It's between you and them. Father, I thank you for a risen Savior, a Savior who lives. Not dead like all the others, but a Savior who lives. And Father, for this, I thank you. I love you today in Jesus' name. Amen.